Rough year for your favorite NFL team? Join me, Danny Heifetz, along with Danny Kelly, Ben Solak, and Craig Krolbeck on the Ringer NFL Draft Show, where we talk about all things NFL Draft, and more importantly, how to fix your mediocre team. Check out the Ringer NFL Draft Show every Tuesday and Thursday. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's The Bear, starring Jeremy Allen White, Ayo Adebri, and Eben Moss Backrack. Season two follows as the crew work to transform their grimy sandwich joint into a next-level spot. It turns out the only thing harder than running a restaurant is opening a new one. Television Academy members can watch all episodes at fxnetworks.com slash FYC. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. It is Thursday, March 30th. It's been years since the video game industry passed film in terms of revenue. But there's always been this weird fear in Hollywood of making film and television based on those games. I'll admit, as a non-gamer, whenever someone says, it's based on a game, I always think of those flops from the 90s and 2000s, like Double Dragon, the first Super Mario Brothers, or the two failed attempts to make a watchable Hitman movie. Remember Doom with Dwayne Johnson? He definitely would prefer you didn't. But something's changed lately. Either Hollywood finally figured out the secret formula here, or games so took over the culture that it was just too hard for Hollywood to screw it up. Last year's Uncharted with Tom Holland, the Sonic the Hedgehog franchise, The Last of Us on HBO, all big hits based on popular games. Next weekend in theaters, there's a new Super Mario Brothers animated movie from Illumination. The Universal hopes it'll be one of the biggest of the year because it hits all quadrants, kids, parents, and grandparents at this point. And this weekend in theaters, we've got Dungeons and Dragons with Chris Pine, based on an almost 50-year-old role-playing game. It's getting surprisingly good reviews. So what changed? The other day, when Lucas and I were questioning the franchises that are ascendant, Matthew Ball, the analyst and media investor and devoted gamer, responded to me with Demon Slayer as the model franchise. He argues it's a hit game, anime, film, manga, and music. And Matt and I started chatting. It reminded me how much gaming dominates youth culture, how much activity there's been in the gaming business lately, with Microsoft trying to buy Activision, Comcast expressing interest in electronic arts, and the Hollywood studios engaging with the business, but not really going all in, at least not yet. It's also the question of the metaverse, Matt's favorite topic, and some moves Disney and others are making there. So today, the state of video games in Hollywood whether film and TV producers have, in fact, figured this stuff out, and what the next steps will be in the melding of entertainment and interactivity. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Matthew Ball. He is an analyst, investor, thinking person, author. I don't know, what, 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 are, what are some other titles I should give you? Well, I've been doing producing a lot more lately. That was okay. a big 2022 focus. Great. Producing what? Producing producing content or producing films? TV and film. The only one that's public right now is I'm an EP on the forthcoming Horizon Zero Dawn adaptation at Netflix, which is probably very incumbent to this conversation. Oh, well then let's get into that because I want to talk about video games and the adaptations that until this year kind of sucked, right? 
It's almost like Hollywood finally figured out how to do these video game adaptations. Or do you think that the culture just finally caught up to the industry where it's like these games are so big now that it's hard for Hollywood to screw it up? Well, I certainly wouldn't say it's hard for Hollywood to screw it up. IP is still challenging. Audiences are very circumspect of these adaptations. And we saw two misses last year, and we're going to see more Wait, in front what? of us. What, what were the misses last year? I think the Resident Evil cancellation was pretty prompt on the Netflix side. Right. And we've seen two Resident Evil games come out in the last 24 months that were outstanding hits. And of course, that's a franchise that has been adapted to a series of different films, which were commercially successful on a budget level, mm -hmm. but never really broke out into the mainstream success that the games were. Yeah. Although now, when you talk to people in the TV world, they all say, where's our last of us? And of course, that's like, you know, classic Hollywood, try to replicate the hit. But it feels like we're in a moment here where these games are hitting and people can have a successful franchise with that. We'll see how Dungeons and Dragons does. And I want your take on that. But Sonic, Uncharted, Last of Us. Uh, I mean, they, 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 are, they are reaching the audience and bringing in new people. So uh, what, what is going on here? Well, I can say that there's probably a few different drivers. One is that the number of at-bats and at-bats with pedigree of production, of writing, directing, of development is higher than ever. And so that's just going to improve the output in a numbers game. But I think part of this actually relates to what we saw in the late 2000s and the mid-2010s, which was in Hollywood's unending quest to build new IP, they looked primarily to Euro-Judeo-Christian IP, right? We saw Greek adaptation, we saw Egyptian adaptation, we saw Hans Christian Andersen, we saw two Hercules, Peter Pans, over and over, right? Two Robin Hoods, the King Arthur. None of them ever cracked. And that was an effort to say, these are titles that are known to hundreds of millions, beloved by millions or tens of millions, and which frankly were probably of fundamental interest to the executive's greenlight, who went to school on the coast, private schools or top-tier universities, and grew up on that literature. John Carter is another example. Actually very popular earlier in the 20th century, not very popular in the back half, and no one pays attention now. Famous flop, like epic flop. We exhausted those at-bats. There are still some going. But I think in an era where everyone is seeking out IP, most importantly, seeking out IP that can be globally resonant, and frankly, Robin Hood is not globally resonant in 2023, there was this natural shift towards game to a massive leap in narrative. When you talk about where's the next Last of Us, one likely candidate may be God of War. And God of War is a fantastic example of a franchise that just hit a new high on its fifth entry released late last year. The first three released early in the 2000s and then early 2010s were characterized as kind of button mashing. They were epic in scale, but they were not narratively beautiful. And then the last two entries released in 2018 and 2022 were understood to be narrative masterpieces in their own right. And so those two factors for which Last of Us was early releasing in 2013, plus the increased creative investment, seem to have brought us to this moment. You mentioned to me when I tweeted about this, you 
responded with a franchise called Demon Slayer, which I was only minimally aware of. But you say that is a franchise that is doing it right. And I would love for you to explain how Demon Slayer is the modern model for a gaming slash everything else franchise. So Demon Slayer is a great example in a few different ways. Number one is it reiterates the idea that even when the Ascendant franchises of 2023 move through the Hollywood system, they're not originating here nor controlled here. What is it? What is Demon Slayer? Well, so it's a manga, Japanese manga, that was developed by Sony Music Entertainment Japan, Mm -hmm. a separate business unit from Sony Music that is Japan-specific. Within a matter of, I think, seven years, it has become a $9 billion franchise. It's the youngest franchise existing today to cross that figure. And within that manner of six years, it's had a television series. It had the highest grossing film of 2020 worldwide with half a billion. And by the way, that released in October of 2020. Well, 2020, the big asterisk there, but yes, yes. go ahead. But, but my point is it was competing against three months of films which released pre-pandemic, including Onward from Pixar, Bad True. Boys True. for Life, and others, Sonic as well. My point is half a billion is still large by Hollywood standards. Ant-Man's going to fall short of that. But more importantly, in that six or seven year period, it has not just done film, it's had hit musics tracks around the world. It has had mobile games and AAA games to that tune of $9 billion. What's fascinating about that is it is contrary to the idea that you can't build in a matter of years such a large franchise. It's bigger than Power Rangers. It's uh, past most other efforts of the last two decades. But it actually suggests that a company that does not have rich expertise in these new fields can not only be good at doing this, but they can do it rapidly as they're still building out the bones of the more traditional aspects of their business. And wasn't that the entire premise of Sony getting into traditional entertainment when they bought Columbia Pictures way back when? They said, hey, we are a hardware company and we have games and we are going to be able to cross-pollinate this stuff. And for the first, you know, you could arguably say a couple decades, it didn't really work. And now it seems to be working. And this is a perfect example of that. You think it all starts with the game. I think Columbia was 93, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So PlayStation, the first one launched in 1994. And certainly at the time, no one thought that that was going to be particularly successful fighting against Nintendo and Sega at the time. And so I don't know that I would quite make the argument that that was the premise of the acquisition, but that certainly was the potential over quite some time. I just mean cross-pollinating, but yes, but that, and that ultimately it be, I know it was a frustration for many years at Sony. It's like that, where is the synergy? Why, why do we have these disparate businesses? We thought they would be of a piece. I think everyone's been focusing on that. And the truth of the matter is even those businesses, which are adept at all of them, Warner's is a great example. They have a hit film business, a hit TV business, a hit games business, and one of the largest direct-to-consumer platforms globally. The integration of those four things is still scarce. Hogwarts Legacy, a massive hit game, $850 million within two weeks, about a mid-sized performer against the rest of the Harry Potter franchise, but far larger than the Fantastic Beasts franchise. 
that's a great hit. It's probably going to drive 150, 200 million in operating income to the master entity, but there's still no integration between those. Demon Slayer is the outlier, and it's also interesting that it comes from Sony Music Entertainment Japan. But that, to me, is inspiring. They're not the games division. Sony Interactive didn't make it. Sony Music Entertainment Japan did. And so certainly, everyone else should be able to. So Mario Brothers, among the biggest game franchises ever, terrible movie in the early 90s. I'm sure you saw it. I know I did. Bob Hoskins, not his finest hour. Why do you think it took so long for there to be another Mario movie and for it to be given the treatment that it's been given, you know, where Illumination is doing it. Universal put some real money behind this. What's what's the two decade problem there? Three decade. There are certainly a few, one of which is just the economics argument, which is traditionally the upside to a licensor in these situations is modest tens of millions of dollars. And in exchange, there's both creative distraction internally with brand approvals and story, but also the prospect that you might embarrass yourself, which the 93 film certainly did. (laughs) And if you're talking about a franchise like Super Mario, it's actually one of the few outliers for which you would say exposure is not helpful. I mean, it always is. Don't get me wrong. But in 93, no one was sitting around in Kyoto saying, well, not enough people know who Super Mario is. It's different for the other titles, which saw in particular in the West, you know, the Final Fantasy movie, I think in 2001, where they said, we need to grow in the West. And how do we do that with a box office hit? So that probably led Nintendo to pull in a little bit. But then in that instance, you're talking about how do you pull them out of their shell? Obviously, Illumination is extraordinary in every sense of the term. But then they had a multi-year partnership of trust built with NBC Universal on the park side. And that probably got them there as a specific case. Yeah. And I think when you add the parks element in, it does act as a differentiator where you say, okay, yeah, you don't need us. You don't need a movie. But if you want the full flywheel experience where you're going to turn this from a gaming brand into an everything brand, I think the parks is a key element. And we've seen it over and over again with other franchises. Right. The gaming business overall in general how would you describe it right now? Would you say that the gaming business is in the plateaued state or is it ascendant or is it even perhaps in decline? Well, so it's certainly secularly ascendant. Uh, mm-hmm. There's 140 million people born every day. Almost all of them will gain and they're replacing those who pass on, almost none of whom gain. And so that's going to produce hundreds of millions of new gamers every decade, billions over time. But the specific context is actually not great. The U.S. gaming industry overall saw its first year-over-year decline last year in about 25 years. The last time was around the dot-com crash. Even the mobile segment declined, though most people blame Apple for its privacy changes. But why? Okay, but besides, besides that, why do you think the overall gaming industry declined in this country? Well, I think part of that is just the COVID pull forward. Mm-hmm. When you take a look in 2020, I think the number of hours for the average gamer weekly jumped from something like 11 to 16 and a half in a matter of weeks. That plus the fact that some people were gaming because they were in lockdown. Right. I developed a pretty debilitating words with friends habit that I am only recently starting to kick. 
Right. And, and so that tapers off. Now, I think it's important to recognize that some titles like Roblox, the most popular game in the world outside of China, has actually hit successive highs every quarter since the pandemic. But most have declined because they face a problem like Hollywood, which is there actually has not been a really big new hit for quite some time. There have been incidental ones. Listeners may be familiar with the surge of Animal Crossing in 2020, which didn't endure, of Genshin Impact from China. But if you take a look at the top 10 games of the year, and then you look at 2008, 2011, 2013, they're basically the same titles, and they're very similar in gameplay. And that's now a bottleneck in the United States. And it's funny because if you look at the top 10 box office hits from 2022, they're all sequels. Right. So you're, everyone's playing the hits. But that's also why we see rampant consolidation now in the games industry, which is something that had long been predicted. But, you know, when everyone's growing 5 to 6% on 1% to 2% cost increases, and they have global expansion plus mobile ambitions, everyone felt like they should be buying their competitor and no one felt they should sell. And now we're seeing Ubisoft sell 40% to Tencent, EA prepped to sell itself to Comcast last year to merge with NBCU, Activision's going over to Microsoft, and myriad other roll-ups are happening, take two buying Zynga. What's the end game on this? Is will this will the video game industry be a much more consolidated industry in five years? That basically seems guaranteed, especially if you believe that Activision Blizzard is likely to go through. Now, on the studio side, the Hollywood studio side, I've been a proponent, and I think others, you're probably in agreement with me, have been proponents of the studios making bigger investments in gaming. It's sort of not allowable for someone like Bob Iger at Disney to kind of throw up his hands and say, we haven't figured out gaming. We tried a couple times. We're just not going to be the primary studio behind publishing video games. And I don't know if the, you know, when you see all these potential merger targets or acquisitions, people haven't really been talking about studios buying game divisions. And I think they really should. These studios have to look to where their consumers are and their consumers are playing games. Uh, and they can be licensors of IP and sit on the sidelines and watch this evolution happen, or they can be in the middle of it. And I know we talked about this with you last year on the show. And what is the state of play there among the studios? Because I know you do consulting for a lot of these places. Like, what are they thinking about the the Hollywood future in video games? Well, so this is one of those challenges where requirements meet tough logic. Which is to say, I think it's hard for anyone to say they shouldn't do that. But when you take a look at the available dance partners, it's very hard to figure out the match. We can certainly look back and say, Viacom paid what? Was it a $30 billion merger with CBS? And now the combined entity is $20 billion. If you went back to 2014 to 2018, almost any Hollywood studio had they bought with a fraction of their market cap and cash, a game entity, they'd be twice as valuable, if not more than they are today, just based on that gaming asset. But now we look at a situation where most of the top gaming companies are as valuable, if not far more valuable, than the Hollywood studios. The Hollywood studios are simultaneously saddled with more debt than ever. 
And so the logic of saying we can acquire a company larger than us rarely happens when we're struggling to pay down debt. And then you take a look at who they can afford, you actually end up with very few combinations. And that ends up being the challenge here. But when you ask this question of where does it pan out, I think some of the interesting questions look in the reverse, which is where does gaming go? Riot Games has long considered themselves to be the next Disney. They made or they self-funded Arcane on Netflix, the most expensive animated series ever, the first gaming adaptation to win an Emmy. You can't imagine that Riot, which operates multiple esports leagues, their own distribution platform, 12 games, one of the largest direct-to-consumer platforms in the world, hopes that in 2030, they're still making their own adaptations that are distributed by Netflix side-by-side with the anime and live-action game series of their competitors. I have to imagine they hope to do what Disney did with its Marvel series on Netflix. Wait, get the benefit, the rights expire, pull it back, build your own platform. And they're probably not the only ones looking at that option. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You have goals. Reach them fast with IU Online's accelerated degree programs. Our six and eight week courses are taught 100% online and can fit any schedule. Advance your career with a bachelor's in mathematics. It only takes 10 minutes to apply. Earn an Indiana University degree that's valued around the world. Get started today at IU Online. That gets into the conversation around the metaverse. You wrote a whole book about the metaverse, which I read and found fascinating. We saw this past week that Disney announced that it was firing 50 people and getting rid of this division that Bob Chapek had started to pursue the metaverse. A lot of the reporting around this was about how Disney was abandoning the metaverse. You have a different take on that. Yeah, so we know three things. Number one is the division was formed by Bob Chapek to manage centralized planning, investment, and coordination across all of Disney. Number two, we know that Bob Iger does not love centralized planning, investment, and content business units. And he also doesn't seem to be a huge fan of Bob Chapek either. (laughs) Okay, yes. And third... Disney was pioneering in metaverse experiences, platforms, and technologies long before the term became popular. What are you saying then? What are you saying is a Disney metaverse strategy that has been in play before? Well, so Disney's parks have been deploying augmented reality and location-based entertainment experiences for years. Those were designed by Imagineering. And it's quite likely that Imagineering remains the best place to build and test and deploy and monetize those experiences. The Marvel and Star Wars integrations into Fortnite were Fortnite's most remunerative seasons. They even had a live event with J.J. Abrams, which was actually part of the opening crawl in The Rise of Skywalker. 
This happened in 2019, 18 months before Meta named itself, or Facebook named itself Meta. Pixar created the file format that is known as the single most important to the metaverse. And the stagecraft business at ILM remains the world leader in real-time rendered virtual production. It's very likely that in June, when Apple unveils its XR device, Apple has been working with Disney, according to reports with Bloomberg, to build prototype experiences. Again, I would assume... That's for the headset. The the helmet headset thing they're going to announce. Yeah. It's impossible to believe the parks won't see more AR, more LBE, and more VR in the future. We're going to see more and more integration into hit games and social environments. We're going to see more promotion of films inside these game worlds. And we're certainly going to see more virtual production and doubtlessly some XR-related content in the years to come. All of those were being built within the business units, successfully commercialized in those business units. And it seems consistent with Iger's overall ethos that it remains best that they work there. Yeah, I would guess that too. It's it's hard to believe that Disney would just abandon this. I've always thought that the win for Disney would be some kind of an extension of Disney Plus that would allow interactivity and shopping and parks experiences and IP interactivity that would go through an existing platform that their customers already have. Um, we saw that they're also abandoning this kind of Amazon Prime style service that Chapek announced to bring people in and give them benefits like Amazon. But I'd still think Disney Plus will be the platform for this, correct? Certainly. And I think one of the quieter things that was rolled out late last year, this did predate Iger returning, but there's now merchandise purchasing inside Disney Plus. You go to the Mandalorian beside the extras behind the scenes, there's a shop tab. I saw that. There are promotions in the application for discounts. and I admit, I looked, I did not buy anything, thankfully. That's not going anywhere. All right. So let's briefly just sum up the video game status for Hollywood. You are excited about the future of adaptations? Not excited? You think Last of Us will be the pinnacle? Where do you see? Do you think this is the, that others that copy them are going to uh, have success here? Are there a lot of stories left to tell? There are many stories left to tell. I'm very excited. And we're probably going to find out that the last of a season two and season three achieves new highs. I think what we're more likely to see, if we use some historical example, you had the Blade and X-Men movies in the 90s that were commercially successful. And most people would say they were pretty good popcorn fare. But then you have Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2 in 2002 that most people say was astonishingly good. It was Sony's highest grossing film until the last Spider-Man. And I think that 15, 20 years from now, we're probably going to look at The Last of Us the same, which is we will see many outstanding highs in the decades to come, but look at one of the first adaptations and still say that holds up better than almost everything that came after. So Matt, you got, you've got a new missive out. You just dropped an ebook. And whenever you drop an ebook, it's like an event in the executive suites around Hollywood. People instantly drop what they're doing and go read it because you have very good insights into what's going on in the streaming world and what's coming. Give us the high-level logline overview of your thesis in your new ebook called The Streaming Book. 
Well, thanks. That's very kind. It's the streamingbook.com. It's free. There's no registration. I just built a custom UI to make it easier to read about 30,000 words. <laughs> the primary thesis is just to say, look, we've been through many transformations in video. We talk about the streaming wars having started in 2019 or maybe in 2007, but the advent of streaming video was 1992. We're more than a quarter century into this transition, and we're more than three quarter centuries into video overall. And there are a bunch of lessons we can learn about what happens when and why that allows us to step farther back than this narrow window of the quote-unquote streaming wars and think about what lessons of the past can tell us about what comes after. All right, so give me, give me one of the lessons. Give me something that, uh, that we will learn. Well, so part of it is talking about some of our conversation today, which is you see all of these streaming companies start moving into gaming and game streaming, first in story, then in adaptation. Meanwhile, we see the gaming companies start moving after streaming. It's no coincidence that Microsoft started last decade with Xbox Entertainment Studios, their TV-centric strategy. Now they're the ad tech partner for Netflix at a point in time in which all of their IP is being adapted to video. And you start to just say, how are all of these pieces going to start to come together? And in what ways can that solve for the profit-poor state of streaming today? Right. Netflix sees games as a differentiator and something to add value. So far, I feel like they're taking some swings, but nothing has hit yet. Yeah, I, I certainly haven't seen anything. But I'll tell you one tip that I think is interesting, which is, and I think it largely flew under the radar. You look at Disney Plus, and in 2015, they launched Disney Life in the Philippines and the UK. This was a streaming video service, but it was also multi-category. You had books, you had games, you had soundtracks. And that was largely seen as a prelude to Disney Plus, which came years after. Well, in Poland last year, PlayStation launched PlayStation Video Pass. This was a large catalog of pay-to-window movie rights that were made free as part of the 90 million plus PlayStation Plus subscribers, one of the largest D2C platforms globally, where you could watch Zombieland or Venom, Venom 2, you could watch Community and other shows, all bundled into this predominantly gaming pack. So one of the things that I ruminate is just this question of, Sony has been one of the primary beneficiaries of the so-called streaming wars by sitting it out. But maybe come the end of the decade, their Netflix pay one deal has ended, their Disney pay two deal has ended. Most of their old rights commitments have ended. You start getting the crown back. You start getting the tick and sneaky Pete. Pat, Pat Sajak dies. Vanna White goes on to a better place. They're sitting there with one of the largest subscription services globally in PlayStation, most of the newest hit IP, and frankly, a really profitable business while most of Hollywood is licking their wounds. I'm not saying they're going to re-enter, but certainly if you said who could be the surprise here? So much focus is put on Microsoft buying Netflix, and maybe we're seeing the test of the true next entrant in front of us. Hmm. Fascinating. All right. Thank you for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. All right. We're back with the call sheet. Craig, you big D&D &D guy? Um, I'm not, Matt. I don't know if you could have guessed that. I'm not. <laughs> I could have guessed that. Uh, I am also not a Dungeons & Dragons person. I played a lot of Super Smash Brothers and Madden and Mario Kart. That was my video game growing up. No, in my day, you get your ass kicked. 
for playing D and D. Um, I don't know what it's like today. Maybe it's a little cooler because they did it on Stranger Things. Maybe I, I think the gaming industry in general is like much more accepted amongst the average person, just because it's so popular now. And like esports is a thing, so the yeah. gaming is just like people view it differently now. But yeah, I mean Dungeons and Dragons is just about as nerdy as it gets. At least right. that's what we said in high school, which may have been bad. Right. Uh, yeah. So when I saw the trailer for this movie that's coming out this weekend, I was like, nope, not for me. However. The reviews are good. It's in the 90s on Rotten Tomatoes. Lucas was on the show on Monday. He said it was pretty fun. Um, I, it, the tracking is at 30 million for this weekend. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm actually going to take the over on 30 million tracking for a Dungeons and Dragons movie. Well, there's a lot of comedy people involved in this movie. I mean, the two guys who wrote it were like robot chicken guys. And one of them is the man who directed Renfield, Chris McKay. And he also did the Lego Batman movie the directors or the game night guys. So I, I like that there's a lot of comedy people involved. Maybe it's maybe yeah. it's funny and, and well done. And Chris Pine can do comedy. He's always uh, had that in him. So we'll see. It's There's not a lot out there right now for families. And I feel like they're counting on parents. Either they were into Dungeons and Dragons or at least they know what it is. Do you think this will be a successful date movie for couples? Uh, a, couples of a certain... <laughs> certain kind i don't know you got to have some balls to take a date to a dungeons and dragons movie or she's got to be super into it already or she's just a big chris pine fan That's, i was gonna I mean, say it actually works out because the guy does. the nerd guy can go and watch his film and then you can pitch chris pine to your date exactly and you know who loves chris pine more than anyone moms love moms love chris pine so they can take the kid and feel good about it all right, enough general stereotypes for one episode. Uh, that is the show. I want to thank Matthew Ball. I want to thank producer Craig Holbeck. And I want to thank you. We'll see you next week. 